This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. I'm Zach Fuss, and today we are breaking down UPS. With over 100 years of history, it's a business we all know as consumers and one many of us interact with on a daily basis. But in investing circles, UPS carries far less relevance and attention share despite its large market cap. To break down UPS and its rich history, I'm joined by former transport analyst, Matt Russell. Please enjoy this breakdown of UPS. All right, Matt Russell, you have a long tenured experience in doing work on the transport sector as a former analyst at Goldman Sachs. Today, you've joined us to break down UPS. I thought a great place to start. UPS is a $200 billion plus market cap, an over 100-year-old business, yet its relevance amongst financial investors is relatively low in contrast to how much it impacts our lives. Let's just start at a 1,000 feet about the business, helping to quantify it and contextualize it in the context of the U.S. economy. It's good to finally unmute myself on business breakdowns. And UPS is a fascinating one to me. During my days covering transports, it was the stock that I learned the most from, the business that kept me up at night. So it's a really unique story where I think to consumers, it's very obvious. You see UPS drivers on the road every day, delivering packages to your house. It's the largest package delivery business in the world. And in any given day, they touch 3% of global GDP. So it's unique in the fact that it's this truly global logistics network, not just based in the US. It is involved in so much of what we touch on a day-to-day basis, but it has become this complex animal. And I think a lot of that comes from the idea of us as consumers seeing the last mile delivery or just interacting with UPS drivers and not seeing what's inside the network, what makes it operate, what makes it tick, and all the complexities that have come out of e-commerce. And so just to help me to appreciate how big of a business it is, revenue, KPIs, what is it that analysts care about when they're looking at UPS to better understand how impactful it is? Yeah, the dynamics for a UPS investor have changed quite a bit over the years. At a high level today, UPS is generating $100 million in annual revenue. It's a low teens operating margin business on a consolidated basis. And this year, the past year, they're generating close to $10 billion of free cash flow, running what I consider to be a sustainable CapEx program. If you step back, though, and think about where they operate in the supply chain, they're in the partial delivery business. And I think Ryan Peterson put it very well when he came on Founders Field Guide with Patrick. Parcels are light, freight is heavy. So if you take a look at the overall transportation economy, that's trillions of dollars, just under 10% of US GDP. Meanwhile, small package or partial deliveries, about $450 billion in terms of market size. That's growing 10% a year. And that growth is coming from e-commerce. The U.S. in that e-commerce pie represents about a third with UPS, FedEx, and Amazon being the large players there. So 
As an investor, from a KPI perspective, operating margins are really the guiding light that drive the stock. And this is where it gets really interesting. So a big logistics network like UPS comes with a lot of fixed costs. The conventional wisdom is volumes should drive incremental margin growth. You basically have fixed costs and you're just putting things through the system, added revenue that should drop down to the bottom line. But the conventional math really broke down with the growth in e-commerce. So you had smaller e-commerce packages actually bring a lot of additional costs into the equation. You needed additional labor to sort those packages. Many of these packages couldn't be sorted with the existing UPS technology. So you needed labor to be sorting these inside a facility. And there were quite a bit of new volumes coming through the system. So that was a big piece. You also needed additional labor to deliver those packages. Again, we were talking about more stops requiring more labor. So UPS today is moving 25 million packages a day. In the fourth quarter, that number was closer to 30. It's almost triple what they were doing less than 20 years ago. And investors have had to completely reset in terms of what is the real driver for UPS going forward. I think conventional wisdom, again, would have been volume growth. But now that there's a secular tailwind demand that's representing lower incremental margins, how are you supposed to think about the return opportunity here from an investor perspective and whether these lower margins and higher capex requirements are going to be a new normal for the industry. Interestingly, distribution businesses ebb and flow in their popularity amongst investors. And so I think to some other industries, food distribution where Cisco and US Foods and industrials, you have Fastenal and a number of other businesses. And really throughout the supply chain, there are distribution businesses that have proven that despite thin margins, you could actually have really healthy returns on capital by getting that asset turnover. I think it's particularly topical because we've now convinced ourselves that asset-heavy businesses are not worth investment. If you look at the returns of the supply chain-related businesses over the course of the last year or so, they've proven to be particularly relevant. Can you kind of explain to us how logistics networks work and how they get that operating leverage on their fixed assets and why it's so important? Yeah, I think you hit it on the head. The barriers to entry here are very real. So if you want to build a new fulfillment center, and that's just going to be one single fulfillment center, you need a network of these to really operate and compete with large national players. One of those fulfillment centers is going to cost you $400 million, then you need to staff that with labor. And if you just step back and think about what do the economics of this business look like for any particular package? If I'm shipping something from Albuquerque, New Mexico to Columbus, Ohio. It's unlikely that there is a full plane's worth of packages leaving Albuquerque and going to Columbus, Ohio. But I'm fairly confident that there's a full plane's worth of packages leaving Albuquerque. So I can fill up that plane. And I'm fairly confident that there's a plane's worth of packages that should be arriving in Columbus, Ohio that next day. So that's where the hub and spoke dynamic evolves out of this for UPS largely as an extent of FedEx doing this in the late 70s and early 80s. That's what makes it economical to be getting so many of these packages around the world economically and doing so in a timely fashion. So it's truly remarkable to go into one of these overnight facilities in Louisville for UPS and Memphis for FedEx, both located centrally in the US due to a variety of reasons. But you can think of proximity to other locations, and then weather as well being a a central purpose of this. And you have over 200 planes tapping down prior to 11 p.m. 
you have all of the packages unloaded off of those planes, put into a sortation facility, popped back out before 2 a.m., back onto planes and going to their final destination. So you can imagine in order to compete with that, it's incredibly challenging. Now, it's a very asset-heavy business, as you mentioned. There's a lot of capital that goes into that, building that. But once you have that operating, it just becomes a game of how do I fill up all of my facilities to the maximum extent, that being planes, that being sortation facilities, so that I take those assets and run as much through them as possible. And it becomes a little bit tricky because when you have a business like e-commerce, where so much of that is flowing through in the fourth quarter of the year, for some context, the first quarter of this past year versus the fourth quarter of this year, there was 50% more deliveries made for UPS on a daily basis. So it gives you a sense of how much fluctuation there is in the network. And optimizing that is incredibly difficult. Right now, you have a very low interest rate environment. You have a lot of businesses funded that can eat into what UPS does. But I think over the long run, when you have any type of normalized environment and where labor is tight, like we're seeing right now, these businesses with asset-heavy barriers to entry, huge networks with a strong labor force do tend to outperform and have more control over passing through inflation. I think to better frame the story, it'd be helpful to kind of explain some of the key differences between UPS and its primary competitors. FedEx has an incredibly storied history. I believe it was founded almost 50 years after UPS. Amazon, the challenger and disruptor that's spending tons and tons of capital in order to disrupt the legacy distribution businesses. How do you think about the differences between the three major players here? It's probably a good opportunity to go back to the origin story of UPS here. This was launched or founded in the early 1900s in Seattle by young entrepreneur Jim Casey. He enlisted a fleet of messenger boys that would essentially ride bikes and run errands for consumers in town. And this would be the obvious things like groceries or any type of errand you can think of. But you have to remember, this was also a time before every family had a telephone. So if you wanted to deliver a note to someone, you might call UPS, assuming that that person didn't have a telephone, and have them take a note and bring it over to whoever they wanted to get in touch with. So that wasn't a great business. There wasn't a lot of visibility on a day-to-day basis. And that's what made UPS then push into more of a B2B model, where they linked up with department stores and offered their services. So if great-grandmother Fuss had a particularly active day at the department store, she might not be able to carry all of those packages home. And UPS, at the end of the day, would round up all of those deliveries for the department store and bring them to the various residences. So that gave birth to the UPS truck. And what we know today is the brown truck with the brown uniforms really evolved out of an idea of not being flashy, the idea that dirt won't show up as much on a brown vehicle that was taken from the railroads. And when you design a truck like that, it's not going to stand out relative to some of your competitors. So at the time, the department stores had a bit flashier delivery vehicles. And UPS always had this very conservative, customer-focused approach to business. And that stemmed from Jim Casey. So over time, that was how the business operated. It started to sprout up in different regions, but it was never a connected network. That didn't happen until you had a lot of regulatory changes throughout 40s, 50s, 60s, and then it truly became a national network. They tried the air logistics network in and around the Great Depression, 
but shut that down quickly with the economic times and didn't reintroduce that until FedEx and Fred Smith proved that was a viable model in the late 70s. What you have is UPS really adapting over time to all of the changes that have happened in consumer behavior. And a lot of those changes were from B2C, B2B. Again, think about the introduction of shopping malls. Now people can drive their automobiles, put all of their packages into their cars and drive them home. So that was a shift where you started to see UPS make more of those deliveries to the malls. So they've been evolving over the past hundred years, but still doing the same core business. When I think about competitors, you obviously have FedEx. That was an incredible story where, again, I think UPS management would have bet against FedEx succeeding. Fred Smith, an incredible bootstrapped entrepreneur who made an air logistics network work. And a lot of that came from the hub and spoke model where you had all these packages delivered to one centralized location and then sent back out. So FedEx became a viable competitor what differentiates those two networks is UPS, again, organically built. So everything that flows through a UPS network is going to flow through together. Whereas for FedEx, you have very different model where FedEx packages that are sent for express versus ground are not going to go through the same network. You can imagine that doesn't seem very efficient. There was a case to be made during some peak seasons in the past several years in the beginning of e-commerce that it did make for a more efficient network. You didn't have a lot of those e-commerce deliveries slowing down everything else in your network. But net, I think there's an obvious benefit to UPS being organically built and integrated all together. The other frustrating thing and difference between FedEx and UPS is that they report different fiscal quarters and different fiscal years. So it's incredibly complicated to report the two on an operating basis. And lastly, the union labor of UPS. This was a big thing for Jim Casey. He focused and worked very closely with the Teamsters in building a strong union relationship. UPS is still the largest employer of Teamsters today in the US and I believe in the world, whereas FedEx works with contractors, essentially selling out those routes to contractors. So two different models, one organically operated I think investors think of FedEx as being more of the overnight delivery, express delivery, and UPS being more of the ground network, but they've mended and molded to be closer and closer resembling one another over time. Since then, since FedEx came about, you did have other competitors in this space. I think the most notable one was DHL. DHL tried to enter the US in the late 2000s, did not succeed. And I think that created a false sense of security for both UPS and FedEx, where you had a big push from a big competitor that ultimately failed. And while Amazon was much different in terms of their entry into the market than DHL was, I do think when you see someone fail like that, it creates some type of overconfidence and maybe your willingness to bet against any new competitor rises in that market. So Amazon really started to enter the space when FedEx and UPS were unable to handle a lot of their demand in the fourth quarter around peak season, around the holidays. And I think Amazon management got incredibly frustrated by the lack of quality and deterioration in those networks. So they started building out their own facilities. While they said this was just to handle the capacity that their partners, their delivery partners could not handle, I think we all know Bezos, he's not just going to have a facility sit there unused. And it was incredibly quick to see how fast Amazon essentially went from delivering nothing into becoming a very viable competitor today. 
when I first looked at Amazon, this is six or so years ago, they were going to need to spend close to $150 billion in CapEx in order to match FedEx or UPS network. It was a massive, massive number. And we just heard Gavin Baker on the podcast a couple of weeks ago saying Amazon's going to spend $80 billion in the next two years. So what I thought was this massive barrier to entry actually was not so massive after all. And we've seen Amazon really pick up share quickly. So today, Amazon's already delivering more packages than FedEx is. They have about 20% of volume in the market, whereas UPS is at 25% and the Postal Service is closer to 40%. But they've picked up the amount of volume that they're carrying themselves on their own network. And there's been several different things that have driven that, one of which is UPS and FedEx's unwillingness or lack of willingness to take more and more Amazon volumes, which has created this need for Amazon, but also Amazon being a very aggressive competitor and understanding that if there's margin in the market, they will go after it. And that's essentially what they're doing today in addition to supporting their existing businesses. Kind of that classic example of Clayton Christensen's disruptive innovation combined with a little bit of counter positioning in that Amazon was willing to accept low to no margins to build out their logistics network get the fixed costs in place that they could then leverage as they get bigger. What does that kind of mean as we go forward here for both UPS and FedEx's future as competitors in the space? Is the entire space's profitability or profit pool just going to be increasingly taken by the likes of Amazon? Or is it growing the pie for everyone? What is going on in the industry to think through the economics of what it looks like at steady state, if there ever is one? It's certainly growing the pie, but the pie is growing with lower and lower margin business. So you could argue from a revenue perspective that the partial market has certainly grown. From a profitability perspective, I think it's a much different story. If you just think about a UPS package on average, about 20 years ago, in the beginning of its public life, a domestic package, let's say it's $10 of revenue per package was getting you about 15% operating margins. That over the past five years, up until very recently, had deteriorated down to about a 10% operating margin. So that is massive, especially when you're talking about these high fixed cost businesses. If you just think about the dynamics of a delivery, so B2B deliveries, you're dropping off more packages in a shorter amount of time. And on average, you're dropping off three packages on a B2B delivery versus a residential delivery where it's one package at a time. 10 years ago, two-thirds of the business was B2B and one-third residential. It's the exact opposite today. And that compression in margin, I think, is most notable when you look at something like the UPS driver. So if they're making $20 an hour, that means every three minutes, you have another dollar. And if that package takes you three minutes to deliver, that's $1 that goes towards the package. If it takes you six minutes, that's $2 that goes towards that single package when you only have a dollar worth of margin coming out of that. So I think that was the big change and the pie was growing and there was this obvious push towards going to all of that volume and supporting that volume growth. But I think in the back of both UPS and FedEx's head, they didn't expect that it would be this way at these low prices that Amazon was offering for an extended period of time that there would eventually be a normalization. And I think a lot of that goes back to, if you look at the late 2000s, you had DHL come into the US market. It was a failed attempt to compete with FedEx and UPS. And I think there was probably a false sense of security just from having another competitor 
make the look and make the push to be a true U.S. competitor and fail. And that probably gave them a little bit too much confidence when they saw Amazon doing some of the similar moves. So what you've seen recently, in addition to a lot of changes to the overall network, is a pullback from some of the volumes that Amazon sends. So I I think I referenced before, Amazon makes up about 20% of e-commerce volume in the US. The revenue number for Amazon is actually 10%. So it gives you a sense of what they're moving. It's the lower revenue, lower margin business that UPS and FedEx are increasingly unwilling to take. Now with UPS's new management team, I think there's a real push towards balancing exactly what's going into the network, not just focusing on pure volume growth, focusing on what the volume is that's coming onto the network and growing it. So it's a little bit of a change in equation for a transportation business, which traditionally is just a matter of, okay, we have all these fixed costs. Let's just add whatever we can, because that's going to drop to the bottom line in terms of revenue. I think it's changed the equation there when it comes to e-commerce. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the primitives of a business like this or any business, really, it's a function of turnover on your fixed assets and then the margin associated with that sale. So you have the ability to either increase volumes, increase price, and to the extent you can keep your costs fixed, despite what are relatively low margins compared to other industry, you can get a very healthy return on capital, which they historically have enjoyed. What do you think it kind of looks like from here, given the competitive landscape that you just kind of highlighted? You basically saw the return on capital go from high 20s, near 30%, collapse down to the low 20s for a long list of reasons, but just a massive deterioration in the network. And I think what they're focused on now is bringing that return base back up, which they were able to do in an inflationary period where there's still extremely strong demand. This is still a cyclical business. It's still exposed to the economy. I think the best parallel to focus on in terms of if I'm a shareholder, what do I want to consider as a roadmap going forward? And I do think that the railroad industry is the most interesting parallel here, where that's an industry where if you think about rails, as a mode of transportation, it's slower, there's a lot of fuel involved, and it's not exactly as flexible as trucking or plane. Yet rails, from a stock perspective, have been some of the highest returning investments that you could have possibly made in transportation. What they did was they took a look at their networks, they took a look at where they truly had monopolistic control. That to them would be grain, to some extent coal, And moving those volumes where there was really no alternative, they could pass through pricing power, was where they focused on. And then minimizing the CapEx spend in order to support growth that might not be there in three years. And it really changed the overall mindset in terms of how investors thought about Rails. It wasn't the volume growth. It was more focused on what was going through the network. I think you're seeing a little bit of that with UPS today, where the theme is better, not bigger. They've sold off a freight business, which was low margin. And what they're focused on pumping through the system is SMB volumes, not nearly as many large customer volumes, which come at lower margins and can be competed over. And then controlling those volumes once they're in the network, also focused on cross-border, international, things that only the UPS network can do and others can't do. So that's where the shift has come. There was a large capital investment period in the mid-2010s. You're starting to see that come down. And I think that is where they're primarily focused on, is where they can have pricing power 
and those volumes being the ones that go through the network. So you made reference to upgrading the network. I don't know if you would categorize it as deferred CapEx or potentially underinvestment, but clearly the business made a conscious decision to lean heavily into its network over the course of the last couple of years. What exactly does that mean for UPS and its offering to its customers? It was a network that was largely built 30 to 40 years ago that was made to handle a different type of package again, more B2B deliveries. And these sortation facilities worked. But if you're thinking about how a package is being sorted in one of these facilities, as of five years ago, 50% of that sortation was done manually. As you can imagine, there's not too many hands touching a package inside an Amazon facility. It's all done through some type of robotics or automated technology. So UPS faced this dilemma. Do we keep sweating the assets, which has worked for us for so long, or do we bite the bullet, make an upgrade to our network that could be either via retrofitting or a new greenfield project? To take an example, you have a facility in Atlanta that costs $400 million to build, and that's going to allow for 100,000 packages to be sorted per hour versus doing it manually, which was 50,000. So you're doubling the amount that you can sort. And that's going to save you about 10% per package on average. But that's 400 million packages before you break even. And it's several year payback period in terms of a project like that. So it's a big investment in the network. You want to believe that e-commerce is here to stay. They fought it for a while, but they finally did make that upgrade across the board to their various facilities, both doing retrofits and greenfield expansion and upgrades. There's always this dilemma that they're going to have. You don't want to build a church for Easter. You have all of this capacity that really sits there untapped in the first quarter and the second quarter of the year that then gets used in the fourth quarter of the year. These sortation facilities are built to battle some of that where you can tap into these systems in a much simpler way in the fourth quarter and then slow them down. So your fixed costs that you're running with are not as intense. And so maybe this is the appropriate time as the business has transitioned and emerging from its reinvestment period. Carol Tomei, who, from my vantage point as a consumer analyst, was one of my favorite CFOs during her tenure at Home Depot, retired and then came out of retirement to take the helm at UPS. She's known for her discipline around capital allocation and employee satisfaction. She's done what seemingly are incredible things for the business, given the performance in the fundamentals of UPS. Can you bring us through what that transition in leadership meant in the context of a business that was largely founder-led for a very long period of time and then essentially went nowhere? Yes, it was probably the most frustrating and biggest lesson that I learned from looking at UPS was the importance of management. We all hear this, but to see such a prime example of it is another reminder Carol Tomei was on the board of UPS for years, and I think she went through the period of time where there was this recognition there needed to be outside voices in this business. It was 100 years of promoting from within. Most of these CEOs were previously truck drivers. And I think that we often talk about an outsider mindset. This was a business that really needed an outsider mindset injected into the business. So she was tapped and came out of retirement, to her words. It was an interesting opportunity, a business with a lot of history, and she liked this challenge. She could be bored in retirement. So she jumped right in, and it has been remarkable. 
she joined right before COVID hit. So not the easiest of times to be implementing a major strategic shift. But nonetheless, you've seen the business firing on all cylinders. They sold the freight business, which was a lower margin, lower quality, not a great value add to the overall UPS offering. That business was sold very quickly. They've refocused on what's going through the network, which I've talked about time and time again, rather just on volume growth. They've shown that they can actually pass through or implement pricing power to the tune of double digit percents year over year. And this is coming from focusing on where they have pricing power and which volumes they have pricing power. Her message has been better, not bigger. And I think that is exactly what they're showing they can do. Now, they just happen to be benefiting from a cyclical swing where there's a massive amount of demand coming through. Read a lot of the reports about what the UPS network looked like during this past peak season. A lot of the drivers and the people within the facilities suggested it was a yawn-like atmosphere versus five years ago, it was, I'm being told to work my 98th hour of the week. Is this even allowed? Oh my God, it's such a shit show pictures of the packages falling out of the trucks. So it's a much, much different network being operated today versus what was being operated just a few years ago. So those are just some of the like immediate changes that she's made in addition to offering better guidance, more transparency around that guidance and executing on that guidance. Over time, I think what we're going to see is capital allocation come more into focus. Right now, it is the wind down of a major CapEx program. And most of the additional cash flows that are being generated today are going out in the form of dividends. But I think you'll start to see that focus more in terms of do we increase capacity? Do we have enough capacity? Or is there a better use of our capital in terms of putting it through the dividend or elsewhere? But really getting the ship in order and the next several years are going to be really fascinating, particularly as the macro environment starts to settle out, maybe subside. It will be very interesting to see how the business operates through that period of time. And I think there's a lot of excitement around the management team there today, what they've been able to do. But this could be not just a cyclical story with a short turnaround. It could be something that has much longer legs and can play out over a much longer period of time. You refer to the $80 billion that Amazon will be spending this year on capital investment. Imagine some of that will go towards infrastructure for their AWS business and the other part will go towards retail. But the number is enormous. If you consider that in the context of the dollars that UPS and FedEx will commit to CapEx this year, how do they compare? And then given that Amazon is spending such an immense amount of money at such an accelerated pace, what does that mean for the competitive landscape going forward? I think for both UPS and FedEx, you're going to see capital investment programs, which are massively smaller. So sub 10 billion for UPS, you're looking at high single digits in terms of billions of dollars being invested with a large portion of that being maintenance capex. I think there are a few things to keep in mind. Amazon is still playing catch up. So when you think about the global presence of a UPS or a FedEx, it's significantly different than what Amazon is working with on a network perspective. So when we think about cross-border and the ability for UPS or FedEx to move packages cross-border, facilitate cross-border e-commerce, it's going to be a different model. It's also different in the sense of what they will move. So you are not going to trust the Amazon logistics network to move the COVID vaccine. That will be something that will always go towards UPS. It's a higher margin delivery, and it's a much more important delivery. So I think it's 
almost breaking down the parcel market and differentiating between what would move on UPS and FedEx's network versus what would move on Amazon's network. And I think something that's really interesting, and we haven't seen playing out yet, but something to monitor over time is, again, this idea of customer turned competitor, but potentially in reverse, where Amazon, a lot of what's moving through their logistics network is for customers that are listing on Amazon's marketplaces and and selling via Amazon. But Amazon does compete with them in some ways. And it is something where when you have a retail business that is competing with other retail businesses, it becomes a little bit blurry in terms of where the lines can be crossed and how things can be run. So I am curious to see at some point if UBS or FedEx would ever push further into supporting some of those customers in more unique ways, such as running inventory centers, essentially, for many of their customers. They view that as a low margin business. They don't want to do it. Over time, you're going to see the competition continue to evolve. UPS, 12% of their revenue is still coming from Amazon. That's been a steady number for the past several years. It's very specific that it's not growing in terms of percentage, but I don't think that's going away anytime soon. And I think that they're going to just balance exactly what they're focused on, UPS being focused on higher margin deliveries that wouldn't move through uh, yeah, Amazon network and Amazon going in the other direction with some of those lower margin deliveries. And so if we kind of take a step back and think about logistics and transportation as a subsector, the knock on the sector has been that it's highly cyclical. And typically, generalists like myself start to get interest at the time that's worse to be invested because outsized margins attract competition, oversupply. The stocks tend to look optically cheap at the worst potential times. And unsuspecting investors put capital to work in an environment where all the outsized earnings get competed away, or the economy turns and the operating leverage works in the opposite way. What is it that in this particular end market within transports could potentially be secular versus historical cyclicality of the businesses? Yeah, I think cost structure is the answer here. That's the one secular change that can happen where historically we think of these as capital intensive, high fixed cost businesses and that they are, but there's a lot of labor that goes into this as well. And what UPS has been trying to do is transition away from having highly expensive labor allocated all throughout the year. One of the bigger changes was in the union agreement from several years ago, which added some of these flexible workers who could be both working inside the warehouse and be drivers. They come at a much, much lower rate than what a senior UPS driver comes at. And when you look back to the peak seasons from several years ago, you had some of these senior drivers that were earning up to north of $50 an hour. Imagine some of the loss-making deliveries that were going out there. If you have cheaper labor, that can also be flexed back into the facility in periods of slowdown. That's an incredibly valuable cost flexibility to have that you just didn't have before. In addition to that, the sortation facilities, again, going from 50% manual to now 90% automated, that takes labor out of those facilities you can add labor back to manual facilities if you need that capacity again, but it's not required year round. So I think cost structure is the biggest thing that could be a secular change. And then pricing power. So focusing on volumes where you have the pricing power, this is again, going back to the rail playbook, not so much on volume. 
you can still grow revenue on very minimal volume growth by just passing through inflationary pressure and then implementing pricing power. So those are the two things that I think will be potentially more secular and allow for that margin base to come up. And there is a playbook to follow here that could bring investors from other sectors, more generalists, to look at the space on more of a secular basis and less on a cyclical basis. In the context of being bullish or bearish on the space, the bull case is clearly you have a new CEO who has an extremely high discipline for capital allocation. The parallels to the railroad playbook that you've alluded to and better handling of their employment agreements. But on the flip side, you have the gorilla in the room being Amazon. Something we haven't spent a lot of time talking about is how the USPS plays into all of this. What does it mean in terms of a potential downside scenario between, on the one end, Amazon, on the other end, the United States Postal Service, and the competitive impacts they could potentially have on a business like UPS? Yeah, in terms of a bear case, I think there's a few things at play here. To start, Amazon's willingness and push to take more and more third-party volumes is not a positive for UPS. Again, they don't build capacity at Amazon to have it sit there idle, and they don't have to operate these transportation assets to maximize efficiency and profitability. It's very tough when you have competitors that are operating with a different mindset around profitability, and that's a challenge to compete against, and they've seen that over the past 10 years. So that's going to continue to be a factor. I'd also say the transition to regional-based inventory management rather than a national model, that's going to work against UPS as well. So if the package does not need to travel as far, that is what allows for regional-based competition. So if you need to put something overnight on a plane, there's obviously fewer competitors that can offer that service. Whereas if it just needs to get from a regional facility to a customer within two days, there's a lot more competitors that can offer that. You mentioned the postal service, which represents to me both a threat and an upside risk. In many ways, postal service has been subsidizing e-commerce for the past 15 years offering significantly discounted rates, driving an operating deficit up massively that will eventually be funded by taxpayers. But in the meantime, we're benefiting from our two-day delivery of toothbrushes. But if you see more capital injected into that system where they unlock more capacity, which they're very capacity constrained right now, and I think that's playing into Amazon building out as well, but that would be a threat or at least cap some of the upside for a UPS and a FedEx as well. I think the lower end of the market being the postal service offering such discounted rates does have a trickle effect through the rest of the market. If you were to see those rates go up at the postal service or just a lack of added capacity, that those volumes need to go somewhere and the willingness to take those volumes from other market competitors other than the postal service it's unlikely to happen at nearly the same rates as what the Postal Service offers. So there's different directions that things could go in when it comes to the Postal Service. The other thing I'd mention, the scenario of the Postal Service being privatized is a really interesting one. I think one of the most interesting things about the Postal Service is that they have access to your mailbox. And that doesn't seem that big on a surface level, but imagine if we all had much bigger mailboxes, similar to lockers, where you could see packages dropped off and you wouldn't have to worry about who is home when you're making the delivery, about the dog that might chase you down. When it comes to a business where every three minutes represents a dollar worth of cost, 
it has a huge impact on your bottom line. And that ability to drop something in something like a mailbox where there's no concern is pretty huge. And I think you've even seen some products being developed that would imply you are seeing an Amazon with a ring try to build something that's similar to a mailbox, at least in terms of how it functions and the reliance it provides in terms of making a delivery um, and ensuring that it's there when you when you actually deliver the package. So those are some of the risks that are very real. Some of those definitely downside risks, secular concerns, some of them a little bit more balanced. And I think that's something that management is trying to, to navigate through. So they've stepped in in a very short period of time, focused on creating a much more focused network, moving away from the postal service volumes, moving towards higher margin volumes, looking for flexibility in their labor force through union negotiations, and focusing on things like cross-border e-commerce, where you don't have Amazon or the Postal Service being nearly as big as competitors. And that is a portion of what allows you to generate such higher margins in that business. I mean, we're talking about something that only makes up about 20% of their revenue, but drives 25% operating margins through that business. So if you see secular growth in cross-border e-commerce, that might be able to offset a portion of some of these other downside risks, and it'll be something that management has to navigate through. Why is it that cross-border is such a lucrative area of the market? It is a monopoly for FedEx, UPS, Deutsche Post, DHL. There's just fewer players that can get packages from destination to destination in very short periods of time. So you need a reliable transportation business like those networks. And there are just very few out there that have the global reach that they do. You've covered this area of the market for a long period of time as a go-between with the companies and its investors. What are lessons that could be learned as an investor in the space from the UPS story? And then from an evaluation of the competition, given your studies of not just FedEx and UPS, but also up and down the supply chain, things that operators can learn in driving returns for shareholders via what UPS has done here over the last year or two with Carol's leadership. Second order effects, I think, are often referenced and talked about, but this is a great example. When I first looked at UPS five, six years ago, I was saying to myself, oh, e-commerce, massive tailwind, must have been positive for the business. If not today, sometime soon, that's a huge growth wave. What I missed was that e-commerce essentially killed a very profitable B2B business. And the impact was much worse than I thought. So there's a few different ways to put that, but I think there's so much focus on top line growth, revenue growth. It really matters what type of revenue quality you're getting when you are bringing that into the system. So I think that's one important thing. Again, I referenced how important management is, but it's one thing to underperform like they did. They were also not very good at telling the story, not very good at explaining what was happening inside the network. And I think that frustrated investors greatly to the point where I spoke to a wide range of long onlys hedge funds across the board. And there was just very little interest in UPS. And I think a lot of it stemmed from management's inability to really explain the story in a concise way. So that's another big one. And then the last thing is, I think you're in an interesting period of time right now where you're seeing what was very recently referred to as a weakness, the asset-heavy nature of the business, the union become positives where they've been able to pass through inflation. They've been able to show pricing power. There are some barriers to entry in terms of what's keeping a lot of the volumes into their system and why they can control those volumes over 
some of the upstart competitors or much smaller competitors, those things that were just very recently viewed as weaknesses are being spun as positives right now. So another thing to watch. Well, Matt, it's been an incredibly insightful conversation around UPS and the logistics networks that compete for our packages to get them to our door now in what seems like 12 to 24 hours on average. Yet the operating margins are incredibly impressive and expanding. Clearly, with the competition coming from Amazon and its co-parts, the story is still a lot to be written, but we appreciate you breaking down this business with us. Anytime. To find more episodes of breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 